Get a credit card that gives you what you need now, a low interest rate on everyday purchases, and place to transfer high interest rate balances. The PenFed Gold Contactless Card is our lowest interest rate credit card. You can even earn a $100 statement credit when you spend $1,500 in the first 90 days. Join PenFed, and together they can help you keep more of what's yours. Visit PenFed.org slash gold card. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCU Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host the Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. This is like being a washerwoman, right? Not my most favorite thing to do. A little bit of skill. You don't want to scratch anything. <laughs> so how many strokes did the guy did the guy hit, hit the lady with? One or two. One or two? Yeah, you probably hurt somebody pretty bad. You can get swim with one of those legs, I bet. Wish I had one. You could get a good swing with one of those legs, he said. That was an understatement. We know that it was a piano leg that is suspected to be the murder weapon. According to my source, that piano leg was never found. So we're in a piano repair shop, looking to learn anything we can that might help solve the case that haunts us all. In September of 2004, 22-year-old Rebecca Gould was brutally murdered in a remote area of the Arkansas Ozarks. 14 years later, her killer is still out there. I've come back to Mountain View with one mission, to get justice for Rebecca. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. So, narrowing it down in my old age. The piano repair shop feels a little bit like a junkyard, but with fancy pianos. There's instruments everywhere. If we're going to find out what kind of piano leg killed Rebecca Gould, this is the place. So I was wondering if, you know, we just could take a look at some of the, you know, these piano legs here, here just the different types. Okay. Turn on the light over there. Okay. Rick Cooley is the shop owner. He's been working with pianos for 45 years, so he knows what he's doing. But I think we're the first people to ask him so many questions about piano legs. They just don't come off normally. You know, they come off if you have to get them off, but they're not made to come off particularly. And if that's right, nobody's going to certainly get the leg off of it. Yeah. There's no way to get it off. It's screwed to the toe. Yeah. So it has to be a free leg. But most of them just have a bolt down the middle and just screw in there. And the the French leg, that's the one on the left where it's more like curved. It probably and has a couple of screws. It'd be hard to screw that one on. It might. Some of them do. But most of them just have like a bolt that's glued into the leg. and. I can see because they kind of stick out, so if something were to like hit it on the bottom, it would probably... See, that one's, one's kind of loose. It screws on. But I'm not going to take it off unless you want to go buy me a six-pack of beer or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, I guess if I could break one off, or sometimes they're falling off, you know? Sometimes the screw's stripped out or something. Does that happen a lot? I, don't, I mean, who does when somebody moves one and beats one up and they lived in a trailer, it probably gets pretty beat up. No, I mean, I imagine it's because it's a tight... So in somebody's ranch orders. house living room, it probably wouldn't be beat up, but in a trailer, it probably wouldn't be. So the yeah. console and a spinet has a free leg, usually. That's the console, it's a little taller, that's the spinet. So but, that's the... Most pianos don't have a free leg once they get to be bigger. Consoles and spinets. Yeah, spinets the smaller one, but that's the only two. I said that those kind of legs are common to spinets and consoles. That are verticals. They're all verticals, you know. But old ones are big things like that. I see. They have more of like yeah, they, a, a top they, to them. Right. And they're more, that's the old fashioned, yeah. Um, and how much did you, you think that a leg like that weighs? Like two, three pounds or? Gosh. Four pounds or something, maybe? Yeah, it's wood. It could be that heavy. A baseball is ash, which is a harder wood than most piano wood would be. So I'm sure a baseball bat probably weighs, and a little bit longer baseball bat, it probably weighs a little more than a piano leg. Piano leg was going to be made out of just something like birch or maple or something, probably. I had a loose one, I'd let you heft it, but I don't. I don't even have anything similar. After visiting the shop, I feel like we have a clear sense of the suspected murder weapon. The piano in Casey's house was either a console or spinet piano, the smaller kind that can fit up against a wall and would fit in a tiny trailer. The legs for these pianos are mostly straight and decorative, and in cheaper models, they just have one screw that connects the leg. Basically, the legs look like upside-down baseball bats. They're thin, and they weigh around three to four pounds, light enough to pick up and swing, heavy enough to kill someone. Right now, we're looking for Chris, a former drug dealer who's been in and out of jail his whole life. He's rumored to be the cop's number one suspect in the murder. A police source told me that their working theory is that Chris was allegedly high on drugs and he did it because Rebecca rejected his sexual advances. I've met Chris before. I visited him in jail several years ago. He was very cooperative and kind to me back then, but everyone keeps warning me that he's a dangerous guy. Plus, his background and the unpredictability of drugs in general make this a scary situation. Finding him won't be easy, but it's what we have to do next. While we search for him, we need to follow the evidence and see if it supports this theory. Since we aren't going to be getting the case file, we'll have to find it ourselves. Fortunately, we were able to get the autopsy report from Rebecca's dad, Larry, along with a lot of other independent medical analysis and research he's commissioned over the years. We meet up with George Jerry to discuss the autopsy. Because of his reporting about Rebecca, George has become close to Rebecca's dad, Larry, and he's turning out to be a valuable member of our investigative team as well. You realize that every day there's at least probably a person who walks through that door who has flat out killed somebody in cold blood. Nobody knows who they are. 100%. And they're smiling at you, talking to you, acting like nothing happened. It's just really surreal that they're out and walking around. What's frustrating about this case is if we could just get some basic information, I mean, you know, like the police to verify the piano leg theory. 
I mean, you know, we know it's probably true. I mean, they, someone told Dr. Gould, because if you look at the autopsy report, she died from one or two blows to the head. Dr. Gould told me it was from a piano leg. Somebody was really mad and they hit her with enough force to kill her in one or two blows, which even with a piano leg, it, it would take a lot of, it would take a lot of power to do it, even for a grown man. And, you know, you can hit somebody in the head with something and not kill them. And so for to, to do it, it must have been very anger-fueled. Her actual um, death report, I guess, it actually says only one blow. Dr. Gould said there, he thinks there's two. Because it, 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 there was like a, a like a, a rendering of her skull and there was like some damage to another part of it. And he thought it was another, another hit. But, you know, technically... She was hit one time, and that's that was the death blow. That is what actually ended up killing her. The autopsy reads as a cold document, but it still gives me chills. It's almost like I'm back in the morgue, watching the details of Rebecca's murder get poked and prodded by the medical examiner, weighed out with precision, written out in terse prose. This 22-year-old white female, Rebecca Gould, died of blunt force injuries of the head. According to investigation, she was last independently known alive on Monday, September 27th. By the way, that's not right. It's the 20th. That's a mistake. At the time of her disappearance, she was staying at a friend's residence near Melbourne, Arkansas. She was reported missing on September 21st. On September 27th, her body was discovered in a ravine along State Highway 9, south of Melbourne. Death was officially pronounced at 10.54 a.m. Identification of the deceased was established through dental records. A relatively high degree of decomposition change was noted. In general, this was consistent with death having taken place at or around the time of her disappearance. It was further noted that the amount of decomposition involving the head was disproportionately advanced compared to most of the rest of the body. Overall examination of the body did not re reveal any evidence of penetrating trauma. There was no evidence of significant blunt force injury involving the thorax. An assessment for the presence or absence of trauma related to sexual assault could not be performed due to the advanced degree of decomposition present. In light of the suspicious nature of her disappearance, findings at the scene, and the nature of her injuries, the manner of death is homicide. So yeah, it was a really, really, really hard hit to the head. Jeez. Maybe twice. It looks like the one super hard hit to the temple was something like the piano leg because um, it cracked her skull. That was the one that cracked her skull. I noticed the name at the bottom of the autopsy, Frank Peretti. He's the medical examiner for the Arkansas State Police. And he's actually a bit of a controversial figure because he also oversaw the medical examination of the infamous West Memphis Three case. Larry also paid to have an independent review done it confirms a lot of the details of the autopsy, but also has some additional insights. Larry told us that Dennis said Rebecca had been sexually assaulted, but the autopsy specifically said that certain medical tests could not be performed due to the length of time that the body had been exposed to the elements. Also, Rebecca was wearing her underwear and T-shirt that, according to Danielle, she often wore to bed. Would a rapist attack someone and then put their underwear back on, but not bother to redress them? According to friends and family, Rebecca was a spitfire who would not back down from a fight. 
Reading the autopsy, it looks like Rebecca did not have defensive wounds. The autopsy mentions that material was taken from under her fingernails. The evidence suggests that she was not afraid of her killer. The date on the autopsy is wrong, but that's most likely a typo. So we have a murder weapon and an autopsy report that says Rebecca died from one or two blows to the head. But to make sure we're leaving no stone unturned, we call a neurologist to get their take. Taylor? Hey, yeah, that's me. Hey, Hi. Adam Webb. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. To the left, and we can do one of a couple of things. Let's see if... This should be good in here. Any blunt trauma to the head can be um, can be dangerous. Um, typically, when we think about the sort of severe trauma to the head that's, that ends people's lives, we're thinking about bad falls or car accidents or anything like that. Um, and, and usually those types of things cause severe injury to the whole brain at the same time, sort of diffuse uh, injury to the brain from deceleration and, and rocking around in the skull. Um, however, other blunt force trauma can can certainly cause injury significant enough to cause death. Um, trauma with a piano leg or any sort of you know blunt instrument could cause bleeding on the outside of the brain, either what's called an epidural hematoma or a subdural hematoma, um, and those can put pressure on the brain and certainly could uh, could could cause death um, if if not recognized in, in a short period of time. So certainly, if it caused that much soft tissue damage and and caused a skull fracture or, you know, a, a, a fracture of any of the facial bones or anatomy, that certainly could be enough to, uh, uh, to, to cause death. And are there certain parts of the head that, that may be more susceptible um, than others? So like if she was maybe hit like on the top of the head as opposed to like down by the jaw? So um, in the temple region is one area that is is susceptible. There's an artery there called the middle meningeal artery um, that if ruptured can cause uh, severe bleeding on the outside of the brain. And so um, that is one area, especially in a younger person where, where damage um, that caused a skull fracture could, could lead to death. I mean, that would be the quickest, easiest, like least amount of force? Um, the two areas, I mean, that would be one. The other would be at the, at the base of the, uh, at the, the base of the skull where you can do damage to, uh, breathing structures and the, the, uh, and the cervical spinal cord and the arteries that, um, the vertebral arteries that supply blood to the base of the brain. And so that's another area that if, if damaged could cause significant, uh, you know, significant injury pretty quickly. So it sounds like there was internal bleeding, but what about all the blood at the crime scene? So usually when we see blood on the outside of the body, that would indicate uh, that someone's ble bleeding from an external source. And so there are a number, number of arteries in the face and neck area that, that if someone was bleeding outwardly, um, they could lose a significant amount of blood. That brings up another possibility, which is that, um, that, that it wasn't the brain injury at all. Um, and that's, you know, if there was a significant amount of blood, someone could simply, you know, lose enough blood volume to not be able to circulate blood to their organs. Adam opens a nearby textbook and rifles to images of brain injuries consistent with Rebecca's. Yeah. So this is a scan of something called an epidural hematoma. Um, and what I'm looking at here is this, you can see there's like a lens-shaped area that's that's not, you don't see it on this side. And so it right. sort of bulges out right there. Um, and so what happens is that's, that's a hemorrhage that occurs 
between the skull um, and one of the outer layers of the outer coverings of the brain called the dura. Um, and that's one that's, that's oftentimes, uh, uh, if you have a fracture that goes through the, the middle meningeal artery, which runs sort of in the temple, sort of in the temple region, um, that, that that's something that you could see. After talking with Adam, it's clear that it is possible to cause enough damage to kill someone with one blow. And surprisingly, it may not have required a significant amount of force. But the thing that really bugs me about the autopsy is the decomposition of the body and how that relates to the timeline of death. We head out to the spot on Highway 9 where Rebecca's body was found. Hopefully that will give us some context. There's a skeleton. See, look, and once you get over there, it gets really steep. So this area right here is a really hilly, remote area. It's near actually a scenic, like, beauty area overlook. Um, it's near a lot of national forest land. Um, you, you look down over like this. So from the road, there's all this kind of brush and trees and, yeah, and then you go past that and there's this huge rocky drop off. And do you know, was it on this first drop-off or was it on this much steeper, lower? I thought it was on the first drop-off um, because a lot of people said you could see it from the road. But this would be a perfect dump area, actually. I still think it would have been a much better plan, actually, to bury a body in the woods rather than just like, because you know it's going to get discovered if you throw it. I mean, you know, yeah, it might take a while, but like, it's going to get discovered. That's what I wondered too, if there was something that just like spooked them, they were just kind of waiting, hoping to find a better spot. And then eventually they were just like, we need to get rid of this now, pulled up on the side of the road and then disposed of the body. I think so. I mean, I, I, think, there's a very, I think there's a really good chance that it was not here for a week, that it was somewhere else. It's funny though, like when I first heard about this, like before I first came here, they did make it seem, they're like, oh, it was, you know, visible from the road. And as you can see, like, not necessarily. <laughs> There's a lot of really wild growth and trees and, you know, I can see where it would stay hidden. Rebecca's body was found close to the road beside a scenic overlook. It's one of the only places on the curvy, steep road with a shoulder where people can actually pull over to check out the views or to dump trash. I'm torn about that because I feel like on the one hand, I can totally see how a body could stay hidden down there for a week you know, with my limited. On the other hand, there were hundreds of people looking and like you said, if it's an obvious garbage drop area, wouldn't this be like one of the very first places they searched? But some lingering questions remained for me. Was Rebecca dumped here immediately after she died? Or was she kept somewhere else and then moved? I remember hearing from several first responders that they saw buzzards circling the site where Rebecca's body was found. Maybe that's a clue as to when Rebecca's body was actually dumped at the Highway 9 site. So we contact Keith Bildstein, a conservation scientist who knows a ton about vultures. I haven't been into the northern part of Arkansas, but I have been into the southern part of, of Missouri, and that's, that's gorgeous hill country. Uh, two vultures that occur in that part of the country. One is a black vulture, which hunts entirely by sight and not by smell. And the other is the turkey vulture, which uses both olfaction and vision. 
uh, to locate uh, carcasses. Vultures can be pretty persnickety when a new kind of carcass occurs in a new area. If it's an if it's a typical kind of carcass like the deer, uh, they might uh, be more. The vultures would be more likely to go to something that they're familiar with that doesn't look out of place, that doesn't look strange, that looks more normal. If the carcass was unopened, you know, the human carcass, it might take a little bit longer uh, for the vultures to to locate it. The question that you have to ask yourself is um, not the carcass you're thinking of, but how many other carcasses might have been around for the vultures to feed on? Because um, they don't like really old uh, meat, unless there's no alternative. Over the last few days, as we've been investigating the facts of the autopsy report, I've been pulling out all the stops to try to find Chris. But in a town where everyone seems to be afraid of him, that's not always easy. I've made inroads with a local source who is scared of us even using their voice. And they've just given me a lead. During the weekends, Chris has been visiting his girlfriend, Cindy. But during the week, he's at a rehab facility in Bee Branch, Arkansas. And if that's where he is, then that's where we're headed. Avenue. We are literally driving into the middle of mess storm territory right now. We're driving straight through the heart of the part of Arkansas where the documentary Meth Storm was filmed. This part of Arkansas has been decimated by poverty and meth. This is some creepy shit right here. Yeah, it is. Look at that. that trailer. Oh, God. You think somebody lives there? Turn left oh, onto yeah. Sam. This is, this is meth land, dude. I'm, I'm telling you. Ew, look at that. Look in there. There's like a, a tree. No. Look to it's the like, right. Look to the right. Look, look. Oh, my God. This is, this is a broken what down. What is that? Miles. I don't know. Turn left onto Highway 65 North. I know we're getting the hell out of here. The deeper we get, the scarier it gets. And the more I hope my grandmother's 20-year-old Durango does not break down. Okay, if he is at this rehab facility, I feel like we have a better chance um, in well, this he whole might scenario. Not, he might not recognize me, but once I say, oh, hey, I'm Carolyn's sister, remember I came and saw you in jail, he'll know. I mean, how many people visited right. him in jail? He'll know who I am once I say that. I did read the contract with this one rehab that's in Bee Branch, and it sort of said that they were expected to get jobs in the community and to, you know, work, and uh, it, had, it had this list of kind of like rules you follow, but it didn't sound like it was inpatient. You know what I mean? It sounded more like maybe something that you could leave on the weekends. Okay, so that was my question. You answered my question then. Like, could we be at the right place, but he is at work? But at this point, we don't really know. We, we're not sure of his exact address. We have this piece of information. So it's either we have really two options now because we don't know any of his friends. It's like either we try to go here and get him by himself and have a shot at that, or we have to try and get to him through Cindy. And I feel like that's really hit or miss. So I think this is, unfortunately, like this is probably the best option to try this. Because if it worked, it would be much better than having to try and figure out what day he's gonna be in Mountain View, maybe, or try to get to him through Cindy. Absolutely. This guy, nobody seems to know where he is. Even his people are supposed to be his friends. Right. 
I brought along a letter I wrote to Chris so that if we can't ambush him, we've still communicated with him and let him know we're not a threat. Like, can we leave this letter for him? But we don't want to leave it if this is not it's right coming place. up right here. Shit, man. Investigation is on your right. This place is scary as hell. Yeah, it is. Oh, God damn it, that's him. I'm going to pull, I'm going to go, but yeah, it's fine. Hello? Hey, how's it going? The phone rings. It's my source. We're actually in B Branch right now, just looking for Chris. Um, oh God. Oh my God, are you Mountain View? He's back in Mountain View. No, like he's at Cindy's right now working on a truck. If he's outside right now, oh my God, this is killing me. How long do we, how long till we're back to Mountain View? 2.15. I just really want to get him if we can. This might be our only shot. He says he's sitting outside a house where Chris's car is right now. The GPS says we're a half hour away. I can drive it in 15. We'll be right back. Though we're apart these days, we're sharing more. So at Geico, we'd like to say thanks. Thanks for sharing your savage dance moves. Thanks for sharing your DIY haircut fails. Thanks for sharing your inner lip sync star. Now it's our turn to share with the Geico Give Back, a 15% credit on car and motorcycle policies for current and new customers. Because we're committed for the long haul, the 15% credit lasts your full policy term. Visit geico.com slash giveback for more info and eligibility. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host the Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. When people say, oh, find this person, it's not just like, oh, you put it, put something in a database and it spits out an address. It's really hard. It involves, and you, you don't have it confirmed until you physically are staking them out and seeing them at that place. And even then, you know, it could be different the next day. <laughs> like, and of course, it's fucking so slow. Getting closer, we realize that this is about the spot where they lost Cindy on the stakeout. How we passed it a million times then. That is so you know? nuts. I knew it. I knew she had to be right off of the road somehow because there's no way. She's disappeared. She just literally vanished. We got all the way back to like the one light in town and I was like, well, she's gone. In a quarter mile, your destination will be on the right. There it is right there, right? There's a white car. That's it. That's it. You see my outside. Uh-uh. That's it, because that's that, a white car. That's your that's, destination that's is the car on the right. Shit, Unless that's it, because that also be it. That's him. That's him. The source has given us the road, but there's two houses it could be. And if we mess this up, we've just tipped the neighbors off that we're looking for him. We need to be 100% sure before we pull into this driveway. It's the second one. It's the one with the people out front. Right, let's go. Right in front of me. There's two guys out there. You ready? Yep. Take a deep breath, dude. Get my you ready? Yep. Chris. Hey. Hey. So. Chris is not that tall, but he's strong in stature. This is clearly a guy who has been through a lot in his life. 
His hands are coated in oil from working on his car, but the thing that strikes me most are his eyes. They're very light blue, almost glass-like. He has a look of concern, like a friend asking for help. He looks surprised to see me, but he knew exactly who I was. He tells us he'll talk, but he invites us inside his house. My strategy when talking to anyone is to keep an open mind and not to judge. I think that they can sense that I'm straight with them, and that's why so many people are comfortable telling me their darkest secrets. It's clear that this case isn't just about the good guys and the bad guys. There are several shades of gray. Chris knows why I'm here and what I want to know. I've already asked him straight out if he killed Rebecca. Now that he's not being recorded by the cops, I want to know if he'll tell me why he doesn't trust them. Well, so, yeah, so like I said, we've been working on this for a long time, and, and, um, and we've always been convinced that the cops are just totally incompetent, and they... There's That's a big word for me, incompetent, or, or incompetent. I think that since the beginning, um, I've never thought that you had anything to do with it, and Nick and I talked a lot, and he never right. thought you had anything to do with it, and the police just seemed super focused on that, and so, um, yeah, we're just, we're just really trying to find out, like, first of all, there's all these weird rumors, like, that weekend... Do you have any idea, like, why they thought you were involved? Yeah, at the time, like, my opinion, at the time, like, I was at a friend's house, and he lived on Herpel. Well, Rebecca had stopped by there that night. Well, he had said something on the sidelines, like he was supposed to go fix her car the next morning. Well, that's the morning she came up, she came up missing or whatever. And then, like, I told the cops that or whatever, and then it turned around, so they started trying to, well, you know her whereabouts or whatever, you, you know what I mean? I'm like, well, you know, uh, Daniel and Nick, Rebecca, me, all of us went to school together, and I was really, really friends with them, you know what I mean? So, like, I felt like, and Tim Mary had kind of adopted me because I had a bad influence environment that I lived in when I was a kid. And they'd asked me, you know, and I said, yeah, mom, like, you know, Rebecca stopped by JB's house and uh, that night or whatever, and he's supposed to go fix your car the next morning. And JB come up out of town for like two or three days and was gone. He said he was at some kind of appointment or something. But I felt like when he looked at me, he looked at me like just empty, empty eyes, you know what I mean? I mean, of course, we was all under the influence of drugs and stuff back then, like really heavy. But in my heart, my opinion, I always thought it had, he knew something more than what he was saying or he had done it. And so I always, he was supposed to go over and fix his car the next day, you know, like, did you fix your car? And he wouldn't answer me, you know what I mean? Like, and so I always thought that, you know, he either brought some people down from Cabot that did it, or he knew more about it than what he was explaining. And I'm like, the more I kind of, you know, tried to help solve the case, the more it got pushed on me that I had done it. After that case went there, it kind of learned me the hard way is never to, you know, I put myself in it as a suspect, basically, you know what I mean? And the only reason I even cared because Rebecca, we always raised in school together, you know what I mean? And like, Rebecca and Danielle would always stay at Nick and Danielle's house. I mean, Nick was dating Danielle. Right. So we was always real close, even like Rebecca and Danielle stayed at the gas station, but Tim and Mary owned it up there. And like, we was always real close together, you know what I mean? So, in my opinion, I watched a lot of stuff, but like, the last person that seen that person was JB. In my heart, I know that for a fact. So why don't you go to him and ask him? Well, what night was this? No. It's been a long time ago. It was a, that night, Rebecca stopped by there and got some weed, ordered from JB. And then JB said, yeah, I'll come over and fix your car the next day over there. Well, he came up missing two or three days after that. Well, why don't you go ask him, you know, instead of pushing down my throat, but I don't want the cops go ask him. 
I mean, had you ever been to that house? At that point in time, I didn't know that, and I had never been to that house before. So that's why I told you, Simon, I said, there's no way he's pinned on me. He put me on a lot of tests. I've never been over there. Yeah. You know, ever. And I didn't, I met Casey one time, and he, he was at the gas station. And I knew that something about Sonic. That's all I know about Casey at that point in time. Right. You know, so I, I've never been over there. Did they ever ask where you were on Sunday and Monday? That night or whatever, I went to Tim and Mary's house. And that next morning when I woke up, she asked me, she said, have you seen Rebecca? Right. And I said, well, you know, I heard that she stopped by JB's house last night. And that's what threw the cops over me. But I said, I'll go over there to JB's house today and ask, you know. Uh, JB's been gone, you know, all day, and I haven't seen him. And then I, I come back by there, you know what I mean, and still no JB, and still no JB. And it was like two days JB was gone. But he had an alibi because he went to some appointment. So I don't know what, maybe he did have, you know, he, I don't know. You know, right. I wasn't, you know, I didn't, wasn't with him or nothing, but that's all I knew about it. But I was like, man, you know, in my heart, JB, you know, and you said it out of your mouth that you was going to go over and fix your car, you know what I mean? And this time he felt like I was trying to pin him for it, you know what I mean? I was like, well, you know, in my heart, I think you had something to do with it, JB. And I mean, I, I, if I ever found out that, I mean, I'd, you know, I'd hurt you, you know? And I was like, you know, because that was like my sister, and I mean, nobody deserves something like that, you know? That's so. Normal. So, so you guys are close, right? I mean, you and Rebecca. Yeah, and Danielle, like, we, we went just, like, all the way from, I think, first grade all the way until, like, she passed away, like, and we was all pretty close, you know what I mean? And you know how it is in school, you know, we yeah. went to pep rallies and stuff like that. So they would also come to Tim and Mary's house a lot, and they'd also go to church with us all. Tim and Mary kind of adopted, like, all of us as a family, you know, so, yeah, I was really close to that whole family. Tim and Mary were Chris's adopted parents. They were also Danielle's ex-husband Nick's biological parents. So there really was a close connection between Chris, Danielle, and Rebecca. She was like a sister to him. At one point in time, like, I didn't have no place to stay when I first met Rebecca and Danielle and Joan. And they had a van sitting out in the front yard. And, like, she would leave the van unlocked and let me sleep in it because I had no place to sleep. Somebody all opening the doors for me, it was just a van, but to me it was a home, you know what I mean? And I'd always go there after school and stuff, especially on ball games, and I'd sleep in that van, you know? And sometimes she'd let me come in the house, take showers, and I kept my clothes in that van and stuff for like years. She was a good person and she had a good heart, you know, and like, I just didn't. <laughs> and that's what I always kind of cooperated, you know what I mean? Cause like anything that I might hold in my mind, I wanted to let it out, you know what I mean? Cause I mean, unforgiveness, you know, and like, uh, I didn't want to, and guilt and shame, you know, about, you know, if I would have actually, you know, done something, you know, if I'd known that was going to happen and stuff like that, you know, it, it, it was weighed heavy on me for a long time. But I mean, I finally just, you know, told the Lord, like, you know, please take his burden from me, you know, and like, you know, just let me be able to accept it, what happened, you know, and just let go on with my life because, you know, I'm getting older and I have family and kids and stuff. But like, I'd always cooperate with Dennis Simon, anybody that's always coming to ask me, you know. But, you know, that's what I told Dennis Simon. I was like, well, you know, you can do whatever to me, but I've never been over there, so you can't, in a way, you stick me for it, you know what I mean? And I was like, I mean, I'll tell you whatever I know. And the more I told him, the more I feel like I was a suspect. So I just. He wanted the DNA sample and stuff, and I was like, look, dude, I'll give you a DNA sample, but I'm not giving it to you. I even got on a lie detector test one time, and like, I flunked every question. And I felt like he was trying to manipulate me into saying something that I didn't. And I'm like, dude, you know, I'm just done at this point in time, you know? Like, I don't, you know, I think I even flunked my own name. I'm like, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, I flunked every question, like I was just lying about everything. And I'm like, you know, I've told you everything, so. They don't even like me at all, period. You know, and I pray every day that they actually catch the person who did it, but in my heart, I feel like they already know the person who did it and they're never actually gonna, you know. 
Like he genuinely wanted the thing solved and like wanted well, otherwise why the fuck would he talk to us uh, he took us in there and like answered questions and was like you know what, what we've heard from everybody is that at the time he had he was you know he, he even said i said well what day was this you can't quite you know you can't quite remember the days i just feel strongly maybe you know everybody's fudging a little jb might even be fudging about how close but although no he said it was a couple nights it was that weekend Chris and JB's stories fit together. Do you know what I mean? They do. Yeah. They fit perfect. And he even said, I, you know, I thought it was him. I said, and JB's like, he thought it was me. And that's yeah. why I got pissed off and wanted to kick his ass. We get back to the car, and Taylor and I are still shaking. We either just met with a murderer or someone who has been wrongly accused of murder. We'll be right back. Forgotten is a new podcast about hundreds of young women who have disappeared and turned up dead in Juarez, Mexico, right across the border from El Paso, Texas. It's a story about borders, migration, and corruption. We talk to victims' families, FBI agents, and a former U.S. ambassador to understand why these crimes have remained unsolved. Listen to Forgotten Women of Juarez on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. After speaking with Chris, we head back to the house and meet George Jared to go over the murder board and unpack what Chris told us. So let's say this theory is correct, that Chris killed Rebecca while he was on some crazy drug rage and upset about Rebecca denying his sexual advances. Was there anything in the autopsy report to indicate that this could have been a meth murder? Dr. Gould and I have actually gone back and forth on this particular detail. Um, there is no indication she was sexually assaulted. You got to remember, it's 2004. It's, you know, like DNA testing, stuff like that. The, the techniques for collecting DNA, not as advanced as they are, obviously, today. Um, the decomposition factor, it was late September. And I, can, and I remember vividly, it was very hot during that time period, um, so that the decomposition would have been more rapid. Um, now, Dr. Gould seems to think it's still a possibility that she may have been sexually assaulted, um, and, and she may have been. I mean, he obviously knows more about the human body than I do, um, but I just got, you know, I, this is kind of the way I operate. Let's just operate from facts. And, right. and as of right now, there is no evidence of it, so I can't assume that it happened. And it also just, I think, for the simple fact that if you are on meth, I mean, it can make you, the crimes I've seen that have been committed while people are on meth are just like, like something out of a horror movie, you know? Oh. It takes it to another level. The story you're about to hear is horrific. If you're easily disturbed, I recommend you skip ahead a minute and a half. Um, back in 1998, there was a family of four in Dalton. A friend is having car trouble. The father gets up, he's a pretty good mechanic. He goes with his friend down to the river. Within a few minutes, he's shot in the head twice, thrown in the river. 
The killer comes back to the house. The little boy comes running up to the door. The killer has a tire tool in his hand. He crushes that kid's head like an eggshell. The mom comes running in to try to stop him. And he hits her 27 times with this tire tool. 27 times. Then he goes into the room where the little girl's hiding under her bed. He drops the tire tool in her stuffed animals. He pulls her out from under the bed, wraps her in a blanket, and throws her in the back of, of a car. As the killer's getting ready to leave, he notices something moving through the yard in the dark. It's the mom. She woke up and she climbed out the kitchen window and her parents lived next door. She was trying to get to their house. And when she did, she got all the way to their front door on their porch. There's a bloody handprint on the door. Her killer came up behind her, slashed her throat from end to end. It's horrible. And the guy that did that, and I go through that whole theory, high on meth. Yeah, it makes people insane. Her murder is not, it, it's, it's shock, any murder shocking, but it's not like, like the story I just told you about what happened to the Elliott family. That is grotesque. I mean, you hear a story like that and you're like, oh my God. And you, you won't stop thinking about it. What happened to her is she got hit in the head a couple times and her body was dumped on the side of the road. It's not a, it's not a profoundly heinous crime, I guess is what I'm trying to, she wasn't, uh, to, as far as we know, she wasn't brutally sexually assaulted. So to me, it's one of these crimes, okay, it's not, there's not a lot of complicated moving parts here. Like that case, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of dead people and missing people, and there's a, this is a whole thing. So in her case, it's not like that. Right now, I believe Chris, which means we have to go back and get everyone's stories on our own, explore all the possible suspects, until we find the theory that sticks and we can bring Rebecca's killer to justice. So you've talked to JB already. I mean, do you think he had anything to do with it? No, I've ruled him out. I mean, I again, I'm following the evidence. I really, in my mind, he's been ruled out because for several reasons. I mean, number one, he was in Cabot that weekend. His story makes sense. Um, and also, I do give him credit for the fact that he voluntarily, he didn't have to respond to any of that social media stuff. He was calling me and tracking me down and being very available to meet with me and trying to get me to meet with him. And that, that says a lot because I feel like if he was involved, why the hell would he do that? Um, that's what I expect for somebody who is more or less being accused. You know, if people are saying, hey, J you know, JB had something to do with it, that's how I, I mean, that's how I would act too. I'd be like, hey, let me tell you what went down for real. You want it out there that you didn't do that. And, um, and this murder, just nothing indicates that it was drug related in the sense that it was about drugs. It's a, it was a crime of passion. One way or the other, it was a crime of passion. I think that they, they genuinely thought that Chris might have had something to do with it. And also, perhaps the thought was, well, he's a bad guy, he deals drugs, he's on drugs. It was just really easy to sort of slot him into that and say, maybe he did it. And we really don't even know why he got accused of it. Well, I still don't understand why. I mean, and, and granted, the police aren't sharing evidence, so there could be evidence we don't know about. But I mean, I, I really have no idea why he was named as a suspect. It, it's even possible that when the police were doing their initial interviews, they heard the same rumors we all, we're all hearing, you know? But it really is, it's 
terrible that their names are still getting texted when I say, does anybody have any names? Some of the same names get texted to me. If it's proven they had nothing to do with it, think about that, living in a community where everybody thinks you killed somebody or you had something to do with it and your name is kind of getting brought up as, as being connected to this and you had nothing to do with it. I mean, even if you did do drugs or something, that's, that's a whole different thing than murdering someone. I feel like it would be a huge weight lifted off this town's shoulders to have this thing finally put to rest. So we have the murder weapon, a piano leg, and we know it took just a single blow to the head to kill Rebecca. We've tracked down the prime suspects and don't think they did it. Now we just have to find out who did. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. joint production between How Stuff Works and School of Humans. It is written and recorded by me, Katherine Townsend. Taylor Church is our producer and story editor. Audio editing and design by Jonathan Sleeve. Mix engineer, Glenn Matulo. Audio mixing and love by Tune Welders. Executive producers, Brandon Barr and Elsie Crowley for School of Humans, and Connell Byrne and Chuck Bryant for How Stuff Works. Our field producer is James Morrison. Our researcher is Sandy Klosterman. Theme and original score by Ben Soli. Available wherever you get your music. To dig into the investigation, please visit HelenGonePodcast.com or follow us on social media. Though we're apart these days, we're sharing more. So, at GEICO, we'd like to say thanks. Thanks for sharing your savage dance moves. Thanks for sharing your DIY haircut fails. Thanks for sharing your inner lip sync star. Now, it's our turn to share with the GEICO Giveback. A 15% credit on car and motorcycle policies for current and new customers. Because we're committed for the long haul, the 15% credit lasts your full policy term. Visit GEICO.com giveback for more info and eligibility. I'm Baratunde Thurston, and I feel like we're having a moment. When Officer Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd, something in America broke. I'm going to try to explain it. From the COVID connection to what defund the police actually means. When Donald Trump encourages cops not to choke people, you know something's different. Listen to We're Having a Moment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.